Hello and welcome to the NeuroPharm Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Burns, Dr. of Pharmacy. I'm joined by my co-host, Christopher Tony, Dr. of Pharmacy. And we have a special guest tonight, a guest interview we're going to get to in just a minute. But I wanted to start off with some current events. First of all, Amia Culpa from last week in our episode on psilocybin, we did not mention when talking about psilocybin for major depression, that it has breakthrough therapy designation granted by the FDA for major depressive disorder. Um, it was granted to USANA Institute in 2019 and to Compass Health in 2018. Didn't mention that when talking about major depression. Um, remember also MDMA has indication is breakthrough therapy for major depression, for PTSD, excuse me. So now the, both of those drugs, MDMA and psilocybin, have been granted breakthrough therapy by the FDA. And Australia, earlier this year, became the first country to legalize both MDMA and psilocybin for PTSD and treatment-resistant depression. So doctors can prescribe in Australia those substances. The House of Representatives also recently passed bipartisan legislation to direct that the Pentagon um, direct studies of psilocybin for PTSD and traumatic brain injury, or TBI, among military service members and veterans. They slid that into the Defense Authorization Act for next year, the bill that funds the military. And this is co-authored by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat, and Dan Crenshaw, a Republican. So a rare instance of bipartisan support for a piece of legislation coming from the House. We'll see if it ends up in the final version of the Defense Authorization Act, but very interesting move for the military, which still at this point follows federal guidelines and recognizes psilocybin as a controlled one or schedule one controlled substance, which is not authorized to be used by a military service member. The VA is trying to open up some treatment pathways to use psilocybin as far as I know, but it's being rolled out only to select VA facilities um, as part of clinical trials. If anyone knows more about that, I follow up with the comments below because I don't work within the VA, so I'm not quite sure what's going on. But this could move forward for both the VA and the military healthcare system within the coming year. There was also a brand new phase two safety study published about two weeks ago in the Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology that evaluated the safety outcome of using psilocybin therapy in conjunction with an SSRI. This will kind of be something we'll talk about in our next edition of the podcast, but I just wanted to mention that in case people realize we left it out of the last podcast we did. This only broke on the 13th of July for publication, so it's very new data we'll talk about later. But I want to move forward with our guest interview tonight. We're going to be meeting with George Selhorn. He has a PhD in molecular plant science from Washington State University in 2006, and he's the founder and owner of Flourish Labs Oregon, which is a testing lab for mushroom products. So um, kick it off with George. I just want to ask first question, why did you start Flourish Labs? Uh, yeah, well, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, really, to be honest, the there's a couple of different reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons was I'd become pretty unsatisfied with my career in biotech and uh, I was looking for something else to do. And many years ago when everything transitioned from uh, medical cannabis to recreational cannabis, I had a couple people suggest that I start a cannabis testing lab because I have a very long and, uh, background, very ex extensive background in chromatography. So that's the test used uh, for a lot of different types of testing in both cannabis and uh, mushrooms and other things as well. So at the time, though, I, I decided to keep pursuing the track I was on, which was the biotechnology stuff and uh, the drug discovery, antibodies and vaccines and things like that. And um, I actually helped a couple people uh, with their very first methods. Uh, and uh, those labs actually ended up being quite successful in the cannabis world. And about five years later, I kind of was shaking my head going, boy, I, I made a mistake there. I should have done that. And then just a little over two years ago now, um, you know, I was talking with a couple friends telling them how I wasn't liking my job and career and all that. And they were both like, you should start a mushroom lab. And um, 
I said, I'm not going to make this mistake again. And then I've also had, um, you know, psychedelics have been a part of my life for a long, long time. And so, um, maybe we can get into a little bit more later, but my mom dealt with a mental health illness and I've always been, uh, interested in, you know, helping people with those kind of disorders. And, and many years ago, when I read about the research that was done in the fifties and sixties with DMT and psilocybin and all that, you know, I always thought it could be a great alternative, but never really knew how to, you know, do anything about it. And I was also super interested in cannabis, uh, um, research and, you know, trying to decide what was most interesting, but, uh, yeah, uh, a past mistake, uh, a, a really good opportunity and unsatisfied with my career, uh, led me to start the lab. Yeah. I'm sure that's a inspiring pathway for a lot of people who want change in their life. And, um, there's a lot of parallels between the cannabis industry. Well, maybe not potentially parallels, but the cannabis industry has made some mistakes along the way. And we have some questions later on about the differences between the two industries. What did it take to get um, Flourish Lab set up and off the ground? Um, basically, I just had to buy the equipment and set up the testing methods. And so, you know, with my background, you know, over 25 years in chromatography, uh, 15 years in, you know, method development. So that's like starting from scratch when you don't know anything about how to purify or analyze these molecules and you have to figure it out before you can actually start doing quantitative testing, right? First, you have to develop the method and make sure that you've got peaks that are pure and represent the molecules you're after. So um, I basically bought the equipment and um, um, it was Christmas break in 2020. 2020, 21, 2021, I spent all of Christmas break uh, that I had off of work. I took some extra PTO and that's when I developed all of the psilocybin testing methods for biomass gummies and chocolate. And uh, I used a little bit of help from a method that I had found online that was uh, developed for LCMS or liquid chromatography mass spectro uh, spectrometry. And I use LCUV, uh, which is, you know, UV light instead of the mass spec as a detection um, method. And it worked great. You know, I actually um, pretty much <laughs> the first go on each one of those, it worked. So I was really excited and I opened up for business on January 1st, uh, 2022 uh, for customers. And I've been going ever since and adding more tests along the way and uh, adding alkaloids and, uh, you know, functional mushroom tests and some other uh, psychedelic tests like Amanita and DMT and 4-ACO and some of these other alkaloids that people are, are looking into. Yeah, it's definitely um, definitely a burgeoning field right now. And I heard your company's name mentioned at the MAPS conference when I was there. You know, Flourish Labs was definitely something that I heard more than one person discuss. So you're getting some name recognition um, where would you like to continue? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's great. You, there was only, there's very few, I think of these labs out there. So, but maybe, you know, more of the competition than I do. I guess that'd be a question for you. How many yeah, other people are doing this? Yeah. <laughs> as far as psilocybin labs, I know of, uh, two other labs in Portland, one in Oakland, and I think there's one in Denver and one in Michigan. Um, but that's been all that I've known of for quite a few months now. I don't know if any newer ones have started. Some other labs that are on my radar are other ones that do functional testing, you know, like cordyceps and chaga and reishi and lion's mane. And although lion's mane is a golden goose, no one that I know of is really doing that well yet because there's no standards available. They're, they're literally so rare and so valuable. They sell for five to $7,000 a milligram or something like that. And there's only one place that I know of that even claims to have them. It's Toronto research chemicals in Canada. And they're literally, it's like $35,000 for five MIGs or something like that. And there's also a deuterated form for studies where people are using, you know, radioactivity to trace things. And that thing's even more expensive or but it's crazy. You know, that that's, that's a huge challenge in lion's mane. Um, analysis. That's why if you find someone who's actually doing a legit lion's main test, they're using um, mass spec, but they're using a database to identify the compound and not a standard and access to that database alone is like $10,000 a year. So I'm pretty sure these, these tests are like, 
probably a couple thousand dollars a pop and not too many people are going to be paying for that. So getting a more affordable source of lion's mane standards is, is going to be critical for that. Cause I literally turn like three customers a week away for lion's mane testing because I just can't do it yet. I don't, and I'm not going to do a crappy test, you know? I'm, I, <laughs> so I could make, I could probably come up with something I've actually thought about trying to do a qualitative test where you just say, yes, there's hersonones or yes, there's aranacines, but I can't tell you which hersonone or which aranacine because there's multiple of each one. And you developing a, cro- a chromatography process that separates all them out. Um, there's just not a lot of information on that yet. It's going to take a lot of, of work. So, But I'm trying. It seems trying like Linesman products are really popular right now too. So that's very interesting that uh... – hugely popular and that's why people need to get them tested because it's these these molecules aren't abundant in the in the biomass and in the uh the uh, mycelium so the purification process has to be incorrectly or you're buying especially extracts if you're just eating the fruit you can get um uh the hersonones the aranacines are found in the mycelium so that's why Paul Stamets sells mycelium products for Lion's Mane as well, because he's really big on the aranacines, even though both the aranacines and the hersonones, I believe, do contribute to neurogenesis. But I'm pretty sure that aranacines have been more focused, and I think they might be more potent. So that's why he's in. Yeah. So there's value in the fruit and the mycelium. Let's You're just jumping ahead instead of my thunder for a question I was going to ask. Where which, which side of the debate do you land Sorry. on? Sorry. Body versus mycelium. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a, a, a clear benefit to either one. And if you can get products, especially for lion's mane, right? For lion's mane, especially. Prefer a product like cordyceps. I have not seen any different compounds in the mycelium versus the fruiting body and cordyceps. There could be, obviously I don't have the ability to look at everything. All I see is typically in cordyceps, there's a lot more cordycepin and way less of the other things I test for, which are other nucleosides. So cordycepin is 3-deoxyadenosine. And then I I check for adenosine, 2-deoxyadenosine, adenine, and guanosine. And usually in the fruit, you'll find a different mixture of those, usually cordycepin dominating, sometimes 2-deoxyadenosine dominating. But always in the, in the mycelium that I've tested so far, it's uh, way more cordycepin dominant and way less of the other, other uh, four that I test for. And I do know that people test for up to 13 in, in cordyceps. I just, if people demand a test I'll, I'll, or an analyte, I'll add it. But right now, people seem to be pretty satisfied with those mm-hmm. five. And same thing for psilocybin too, you know, with like uh, with uh, um, the fruiting body versus the mycelium. I've had a couple people want to test their mycelium for actives because then they're really concerned about being able to ship it, right? And while I've had a few people interested in it, they've never followed through and sent the mycelium in for testing. Just recently, I had a local person bring me some um, and the mycelium was on a plate and it had been a little older or and or been uh, uh, exposed to light. So there were some tiny little fruits on it. So I don't think it was the best sample to say that there's no alkaloids in the mycelium because because there were little tiny fruits, even though I picked them off before I scraped the mycelium off the plate and tried to test it, I did get like a measurable detectable, like I could detect it, but I couldn't really quantitate it. So it was below the level of quantitation, but above the limit of detection. So, but again, I think that's not the best example to test mycelium for bioactive alkaloids because it had some tiny little fruiting bodies on it. So I would way rather see one that came right out of the dark and I'm testing that in less than 24 hours, scraping the mycelium and, and, and trying to test it. Right. So that's, that's a much better test, but yeah, if anybody wants to send me some mycelium, man, I'd like to find out if there's any alkaloids in there. Cause I've heard mixed things from, you know, the internet. Right. So some people say there's no alkaloids in the mycelium and other people claim that there is. So, uh, I've seen some literature, most of the literature I've seen, like in the scientific literature claims that it's not. So that's the kind of camp I'm in until I prove myself wrong. Makes sense. Yeah. Hey George, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Um, 
you cool. kind of uh, referred to the cannabis industry earlier. Um, so how are you basing your business off of the cannabis industry and how is your business uh, similar to a third party testing facility in the cannabis industry? Um, well, I can't say I'm really basing my business off of anything I learned in the cannabis industry because like you said, it's kind of like in the gold rush, it's like I'm selling shovels instead of trying to go get, you know, you know, collect gold. Um, I, I'm just running it like a, any laboratory, uh, like a, any business minded laboratory would. I've, I've been a director at Rose City Labs in Portland before, and I've been the principal investigator on labs where I've written grants and had to budget the money and figure out what to buy and when and what not to buy and all that sort of thing. So most of my, my business uh, approach just comes from trying to run a solid laboratory that's um, providing my customers with the best data I can possibly provide. So uh, I don't have any accreditations yet, but I operate like I do, like I, I do, I record I, every day I turn the scale on, I calibrate the scale, you know, what I, and at every day that I, um, or every, every like 90 days I'll recalibrate with new, uh, certified reference materials and make a new calibration curve when I get new CRMs or if anything moves, like I have to change the, the lamp on my machine. I just ordered a new UV lamp cause it's starting to not want to turn on sometimes. So when I replace that, I have to recalibrate every single test that's run on that machine. So I have to redo the calibration curves cause I changed something. So mm-hmm. under the accreditations and also be, my day job is I'm a senior scientist in a clinical research lab where we develop new blood tests from dried blood spots. So it's kind of like Theranos, you know, the whole, that woman, Elizabeth Holmes, that just went to prison for claiming they could do all these tests from a drop of blood. Well, the company I work for actually can do that stuff, but it's actually dropped on a blood card, like a dry, so it dries the blood spot out so that people can send it in. They don't have to go to the doctor for all these tests. So that lab is regulated by CAP and CLIA, these really, high level, uh, clinical accreditation bodies. And I'm basically taking all of the stuff I'm learning there and applying that to flourish in that I'm going to be operating under a higher stringency than all of the accreditations I'm even going to go after. So, and I'm doing that because I want people to know that I'm trying my best to provide them with really solid tests that they're going to get results and they can trust them. So uh, that's kind of my business model, you know, in terms of the science side of things. In terms of actual business development, what I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, initially I was just going to be a psilocybin testing lab. And about five or six months into the psilocybin testing, you know, I expected it to be slow because this was over about a year, year and a half ago, year, a year and a half ago to about a year ago. And I felt like I needed to, to branch out. And I, I, that's when I started having people contacting me and asking about cordyceps or other um, uh, functional mushrooms. So I was like, I'm silly if I don't start instituting some of these tests. So my recognizing how slow the psilocybin stuff was going to be developing, I decided to put a lot more effort in developing uh, functional tests instead of, um, well, because I'd already been satisfied with the tests I had for psilocybin and I hadn't been approached much about DMT and 4ACO and 4OH, which as soon as people started coming with me, Coming to me with those questions, I, I put those tests in place right away, especially for people that are having problems where people are knocking their products off and putting 4ACO in instead of you know psilocybin. Um, so trying to branch out to increase my, my customer base was really important for a while. And then now I'm pretty much got just a couple more tests to institute and I'm going to be done except for lion's mane. So, you know, I've got uh, uh, Chaga is up and running. Beta glucans is up and running. Ammonite is up and running. Cordyceps, uh, NNDMT, 5-MeO-DMT. Did I say beta glucans yet? If I didn't, uh, that one. And 4-ACO, 4-OH, and then psilocin, psilocybin, baocystin, norbaocystin. 
and norcilicin, and I can do all those in gummies, hard candies, biomass, liquid extracts, and dry extracts. So um, the only other tests I'm getting ready to set up, and then I'm going to call it good, are Kratom, because I have a specific customer who's interested in that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Reishi is on the docket right now. Uh, so those two are the active ones I'm working on. And once those are done, I think that's pretty much it except for lion's mane. And that's going to be, turkey tail? Oh, I might turkey try tail? to do ashwagandha too. Turkey, turkey tail. Yeah, I, I do get some, but that's more of a mass spec test. But once I have the mass spec, I, I can do open up even more, uh, because people, the, there's these analytes in a few mushrooms that are really there's just no standards for them, right? One of them is uh, PSK or Creston, it's called. And it's another, the same person that's interested in Kratom. She wants me to start testing for this. And I'm going to need a mass spec for that because you just can't get reliable reference material. And then Turkey Tail, there's these same thing as, as Lion's Mane. There's these diterpenoids that um, they're just, there's too many things that co-elute with them as far as I understand it with HPLC. So that means under the same peak, you'll have multiple molecules. And when you have a mass spec, you can actually determine more than one molecule under a single peak because of the charge to mass ratio is like a, like a fingerprint. Whereas HPLC UV, you're just looking at the absorbance of UV light and the different molecules can absorb the same wavelength, but different molecules have different charge to mass ratio. So even if they come out under the same peak on the LC, the mass spec can pick them out. So that's the nice. power of the mass spec. Now, are you working um, kind of independently uh, at your business or do you have like, technicians that help you that work under you? Yeah, right now, right now it's been a hundred percent me the whole time. I would love to get some help in there, but like I'm still a little bit too inconsistent with the revenue. Um, I thought I was there like uh, the first few months of, of 2023 were uh, amazing. And in May, I got completely overwhelmed and I was getting ready to hire someone. And then I don't know if it's the summertime or if there's more labs out there with competition, but it definitely slowed down the last six weeks. Um, I'm hoping it's just a summer lull where everybody got nice weather and they went on vacations and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I'm just chugging along doing my thing. And uh, uh, but I would love to hire a couple technicians. I actually know somebody that's very experienced uh, in the clinical testing world that I work in. And I was going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do like pretty hardcore test validations uh, on all my tests and have them done by a, another person instead of myself, which can, you know, lends legitimacy to it. So I'm going to actually, I'm going to pay them like a consultant or like a, 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 a the contractor type person to come in, do my test validations. And then, you know, I have all that data. I can do them, but this person's actually got more experience in me in validating like clinical tests. So they've, you know, it's going to be mm -hmm. awesome. I'm really excited for it, but I just need to, to balance a couple things out and, uh, and get that done. So, awesome. but the, the psilocybin tests are actually validated at a very low level that I've already done a long time ago, but uh, like to determine LOD and LOQ and all that stuff. But, you know, we're going to go and, and, and characterize these like a, like a cap CLIA regulated test. Is psilocybin uh, picking up at all, by the way, for Oregon? You know, I've been curious to see, <clears throat> we talked about Oregon and Colorado last in our last session being the two states that have pushed through with, quasi legalization of both of those of psilocybin um both of them are doing a little differently but oregon approving for the clinical setting i know it's been mm -hmm. slow to roll out with all their credentials the state is requiring the cost of setting up a clinic but how, how are things going in oregon in that regard yeah like you said really slow um i i haven't checked super recently, but like a month and a half to two months ago, there was some news that came out as you know, the first producer was licensed and accredited. The first lab was licensed and accredited. And I think the first processor. So there's like one, one of each. And I don't think there's any treatment centers open yet, although I could be wrong. Maybe there are now. So there's literally like one company in each uh, area that's licensed and accredited, but nobody to sell mushrooms to 
as far as I know. This could have changed recently, but I, I, I do need to double check on that. I do check every once in a while, but it's been going so darn slow that um, it kind of lends you to forgetting to check. <laughs> and is there only one supplier as well? Or okay. Well, as far as I know, yeah, there's one grow, one producer operation that's approved and accredited. But I, again, that was uh, at least like six to eight weeks ago. So maybe more have, but I don't know of any places you can actually go and get therapy yet. But yeah. like I said, I don't, I'm not an expert in that area. With regards, let's, let's go back to psilocybin for a second. Um, potency. So one thing that's always been interesting to me is that it's dose based on the, in clinical settings, on the dry weight of the mushroom. The dry weight of the mushroom, allegedly, from what I've read, has around 1% of the dry weight content is psilocybin. Granted, it varies from species to species. Um, do you feel that that's an accurate assessment? And what extracts, I guess, are better than others in terms of having higher quantity of psilocybin? Sure. Uh, so if you're talking about cubensis, I would say a 1% cubensis is like a little bit on the higher end. Typically, like 0.5 to 0.8 is what I see for psilocybin cubensis. Um but I see, I mean, of course, I know a lot of these other names are actually cubes that are like mutated a little bit or worked in some way or hybridized. Like I'm, I'm definitely don't know a whole lot about mushroom breeding and growing and all that. But uh, the, the, I've tested some apes that consistently come in at about 2%. So about double that of your average cubensis. And I've tested a lot of mushrooms that are really, really, really poorly potent, like in the 0 0.1 to 0.3, 0.4% range. And this usually comes from people that don't mm. store their mushrooms well, or they uh, homogenize it into a powder and don't store it well. That's the fastest way to get it to, to degrade. But you can homogenize into a powder, vacuum seal it, keep in the dark at like 60 degrees, and it will keep really well. I mean, I had a customer do like a one-year stability study, and it's statistically mm. unchanged after a year when vacuum sealed and stored in the dark at 60 degrees, uh, bone dry when it's sealed too, like literally completely dry. So that was pretty cool. And then as far as extracts go, well, actually, hold on one more. I had uh, somebody sent a, uh, uh, not paniolus, but psilocybe uh, cyanensis, and it tested at 3%. That's the wow. most potent mushroom I've seen. So yeah, like 30 migs per gram. You, <laughs> that is, uh, you got to be careful with those. Yeah, super potent. Uh, and then as far as the extracts go, um, it's really the skill of the extractor because there's a couple people I know that can start with an average uh, potency mushroom and develop a very nice, clean, potent extract. And then um, some people, they do an extract and it's, you know, in terms of like the MIGS per gram or the percentage, it can be less potent than the mushroom. Now, you're not always doing an extract to get it to be more potent. Sometimes you want to remove the biomass because it can make people feel sick. So it, you don't always have to get an increase in potency, although that's kind of the goal of an extract, right? Um, so apes, pretty much make some of the best extract that I've seen in terms of potency. But, you know, then there's the whole discussion of what is potency? Like, what do we, we don't really know too much about it now. Like kind of similarly, similarly in cannabis, there's this entourage effect and these different cannabinoids and terpenoids that contribute to the effect. Like, are we going to find out that mushrooms are similar? I would be really surprised if, if it wasn't. And uh, here, actually, this is a really interesting story. I think I'd have to double check. Um, is the 5-HT receptor, is that a G-protein coupled receptor? Do you guys know that, that is, off right, the top Chris? of your head? <laughs> the, yeah, I, I believe it is. Yeah. Okay, I thought so too. Okay, cool. This is a good story then. Uh, about two weekends ago, I went to this hash expo uh, at this company down in uh, McMinnville called Laurel Crest. I was invited there by this awesome woman named uh, uh, Catherine Sidman or Cytocat on Instagram. Uh, shout out to her. She's amazing. She invited me to come down and was like, 
you know, it, it is, it, it's, it's a cannabis uh, hash expo, but there's going to be mushroom people there. And I think you'll, I think you'll have a great time. So I went down there for one of the days and I met this pharmacology professor, um, uh, Dr. Sully, I believe. Uh, I think it's Doc, it, although his first name might be Sully. I'm super sorry, but really intelligent, like really cool dude. And he starts talking to me about the uh, cannabis CB1 receptor because it's a G protein coupled receptor as well. And he's like, what do you know about G protein coupled receptors? I was like, well, when I was in school, <laughs> grad school about 17 to 20 years ago, uh, it was basically a cool on off switch, right? You had the two subunits that would stay associated and the other subunit that would slide back and forth in the membrane. And we thought it was an on off switch. And he told me that they've recently discovered that G protein coupled receptors can have up to six allosteric regulatory sites. So instead of an on off switch and you guys being pharmacists, you understand this stuff a lot more than most. Instead of there being an on off switch, it's basically a, a, a switch that has six different dials, right? So that's crazy. So now we're thinking, now we got to consider these drugs that, especially SSRIs and, you know, which we've relied on for a really long time, which don't help very much. Um, maybe they're just turning these switches on so heavily or shutting them down. I don't really know too much about the pharmacology of those drugs. Uh, but just the simple fact that they can be modulated at such a high level really like was an aha moment for me. And one of those classic exper experiences where if you allow science to teach you the lessons it's supposed to, it's where I was like, oh man, we think we know, but we really just don't know, you know, until we, we figure out some major leap forward, you know? And so understanding that these receptors that bind to cannabinoids and bind us, uh, you know, uh, alkaloids that, that cause uh, psychedelic and other therapeutic effects, there's so much to learn. And, and the fact that most physicians don't even know that they're effective yet is exciting in one way, but really scary in other ways, because, coming from a history where my mom suffered from bipolar disorder my whole life and a huge chunk of her own life, you know, I saw what mismanaging your medication can actually do. Um, and my mom also had some metabolic, she had hyperthyroid. So when her thyroid would get crazy, she would metabolize her medicine a lot quicker and that she would go low and she would have a breakdown. And then other times, if it would slow down, she'd get toxic with her lithium and she'd have a breakdown. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, I was, believe it or not, I think I was like a sophomore in college studying chemistry. And I was like, mom, you need to tell your doctor that you need to have your blood work done like every couple weeks or every 30 days for a while until you can track what's going on. And when she did that, she never had a breakdown again from like a metabolism issue. Wow. So, cause they started testing her more regularly and, and it was, it was crazy. It totally worked, but it's just gave me another one of those lessons where, you know, uh, I think a lot of people, when they think about science, they tend to think in snapshots. And unfortunately, because of the way we've presented information forever up until the digital age where everybody can see a video everything was basically a snapshot, a picture in time where you have a lot of people thinking that's reality. Like that picture in time is like exists longer than for a moment where anybody who studied any type of, you know, biology or chemistry or, you know, that it's way more dynamic than that. And that was a split second in time that that molecule will hit that receptor and then it can come off and then get modulated by other things. And so this whole, it's just a lesson, right? Like never feeling like, you know, it because that's your worst enemy. And, and actually when I was, when I was defending my thesis and my PhD uh, or my dissertation, I guess you're supposed to call it. Um, one of the last things I said to my committee before they said, Oh, congratulations, you know, you're done. Uh, I said, one thing that I've realized going through all this is that I really don't know anything. And right. one of them basically said, well, that's why you're getting granted your doctorate today because you're, you've learned how to think about this stuff. You're able to, you know, step outside your own brain, so to speak, and, you know, question things and, and not be satisfied 
that you know exactly what's going on, especially in a field that is so young and there's so much to learn in terms of the, the therapeutic benefits, the pharmacology, the side effects, if there are any, like, and then what about this fascinating goal that these people are working on where they're trying to separate the, uh, the psychedelic effect mm -hmm. from the therapy. Now, is, is that possible? I'm the, the, the things that I'm hearing are yes, is that they're having success with this, but I know there's a huge camp of people out there that believe the trip and the psychedelic experience is part of it, right? Because at least in my experience, the, uh, the hardships or the battles you go through when you're in a intense psychedelic experience, experience, some of that fear is help what helps you change, you know? And, and I think it's a healthy, like uh, dose of self-induced fear and, and sort of a wake up call. But I mean, if you can achieve those breakthroughs biochemically without some of those scary experiences, I'm sure that's going to, cause not everybody can handle those very well. You know, I've definitely seen people when I was younger not handle, you know, what people call a bad trip. I just usually call like a difficult experience because, you know, when you're in those states, if you have enough experience to let it ride and not kind of get in your own head and freak out, they can be very beneficial. It's when you resist them and fight things. And, you know, I'm sure you guys are probably aware of that, too. You know, it's like especially you hear the stories of people when they do DMT, it's like go through the door you know, accept, accept what is being offered to you. And it might be a little bit scary, but don't run away from the things it's trying to show you, I guess is a way to put it. And is that critical for long-term therapy? You know, I don't know. Be super ha have you, are you familiar that. with two uh, bromine LSD or BOL? I've heard of that. Yeah, uh, it was actually Albert Hoffman did mm -hmm. synthesize it after he synthesized I've never LSD. Done it. Well, it's supposedly a non psychoactive form of LSD. So that's something we haven't talked about on the podcast yet, but it was a future topic yeah, okay. for treating headaches. headaches. About. Depends on the indication. I think I really, you know, um, we have a discussion on pain uh, next time. And the uh, allosteric site is a site separate from the active site an enzyme or receptor where a molecule binds so thank you for explaining that i was like that might have gone over the head of some people listening yeah <laughs> excellent piece of information yes yes so you guys are going to be talking about pain something i saw this a while back maybe like a year ago or so and i was like really perplexed because i didn't really know at the time that people used mushrooms for pain relief there's a woman in canada that has like super gnarly cluster headaches. I believe she was the first person in Canada to be prescribed mushrooms medicinally. And she eats an insane amount of, of mushrooms every day. And it supposedly helps her with cluster headaches. You can Google it. I'm almost certain it'll show up. Um, I'm almost certain it's a, a, a true story as well. Um, but uh, I didn't know that. And then, but you know, it seems like it could have that effect, but what, you know, again, such a brand new topic and, and, and placebo effect can be really strong, but the amount of mushrooms she was eating was insane. Like it would make a normal person trip for a week. And I think she's built up so much resistance or, you know, uh, tolerance that it just doesn't mess with her that bad. It's just crazy. Yeah, you know, we talked about tolerance to psilocybin is possible, um, but you do need relatively regular consumption of psilocybin to develop. Once you, a few days off even, the tolerance seems to go away. So if you are using every day, then yes, tolerance continues to build. But interestingly, tolerance doesn't persist as long as it does for some things like alcohol if you're not continuing to use it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cannabis can last quite a while too. Yeah, and... Um, speaking of cannabis, I think that going back to the main point of the question on cannabis was about all the products that are really bad on the market, with especially cannabidiol. They're just mm. mislabeled, misbranded. Um, it, it's awful. I mean, the market is is awful, as I'm sure you're aware. Yes. And how do we avoid some of those mistakes with, with yeah. mushroom products? And what should consumers really be looking for in evaluating that? Yeah, you know, the unfortunately...
the only way to really control it is if it's tightly regulated because if it's not regulated and there's not penalties for having products that don't have what you say is in it, it's never going to change because it's a notorious problem. It started with CBD. You know, it's been in all of the cannabis markets before there was testing required, just blatant lack of actives in the products. And, you know, I've seen every kind of player, even in the short time I've been involved in the mushroom lab, where there's people out there trying so hard to be transparent, get their stuff tested, have a COA and show everybody, look, I'm doing the right thing. And then there's the other group of people that are like, well, there's actually another group. The other extreme group of people is I'm not paying for testing. Nobody, I don't have to, that's not a good return on investment right now. And I'm like, all right, you know, but these people that there's lots of, there's lots of um, informed customers out there that do know the cannabis industry is all tested and labeled and all that. And they're going to expect that much more quickly in the mushroom industry. And you see it in the functional realm as well. It's like not regulated. So stuff doesn't even have the species in it sometimes. But so yeah, regulation, I think is the only way that it's ever going to change. And I hope that the lessons learned in the cannabis industry will allow the mushroom industry to jump a lot of those hurdles a lot more quickly. And especially when it comes to the federal stuff, because really nothing can change for real until the feds change it. Cause look at the banking industry and the cannabis, they're still in, operating in cash. Some of those businesses make so much money and they almost have to like rent an armored truck to move their cash, you know? And it's like just asking for robberies and stuff like that. So it's, the great thing about mushrooms is that if you look at the lobby that keeps cannabis illegal on the federal level, it's almost non-existent for mushrooms because there's really, other than the biopharma stuff, there's no other lobby against mushrooms, right? Like cannabis, it has the pharma companies, it has the energy companies, it has textiles, it has food, it can make disruptions in all of those industries, which is why it's still federally illegal, right? Because all of those industries are like, please don't make that plant legal because you're going to kill all of our businesses. An interesting argument. And and, that's uh, yeah, why probably. I believe it's still and probably going to remain that way. So you're not confident that so, cannabis... I mean, it's just a, a hypothesis, it's just an idea. And not in t <laughs> This is going to sound very cynical. Not until the U.S. government and, and the pharmaceutical companies have a lockdown on what they want to take over, which I believe is going to be CBD and any other analogs of cannabinoids that are showing therapeutic potential. They're going to they're going to they already have patents on them. The U.S. government has patents on these things. They're such they're so hypocritical. And I know other people have said this ad nauseum, but how can you own a patent on a molecule for medical purposes when you claim the plant that it comes from has no medical purposes? It's, it's fucking ludicrous and it makes me so angry, but money, power, that's what happens. Yeah. You know, we talked about MK ultra with LSD too. And that, that obviously another talking point with uh, government owning the patent and testing it without people's knowledge and then going back and saying, no, it's illegal, even though yeah. they were doing it unethically testing without even. Yep. And for way more nefarious purposes than trying to help people. Mm -hmm. That was so they could like mind control people and, you know, or they thought they hoped. <laughs> yeah. You know, not trying to help people with mental illness or trauma or PTSD, like all the soldiers that they send all over the world to get that stuff. So that's what I'm super excited for. I, I hope that the military gets their act together and starts taking care of these veterans, you know, because that is, they deserve it so much, man. Like it's, it's insane that we have the people that go and defend our homeland, come back here and not at least live in comfort let alone they should be living – of course, I think it should be related to how much active duty you had. 
But the more active duty you had, the more we should be helping them out. Start and not just giving them money to sit on their butts because those people aren't like that anyways. You know, get them the therapy they need to get over all that trauma. Give them like grants to start a business or whatever. You know, that's the kind of things we should be doing with them. Not, ugh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes me get too far off topic. Uh, anyways. So what, uh, in terms of, again, going back to extraction techniques. So, you know, water versus extraction techniques versus dry. You, you're saying you see some people who seems to be more on the person who's actually doing the. Yeah. You know, that's a, it's a pretty new thing. A lot of people are getting into extracting mushrooms. So they're learning new ways to deal with things. And, uh, there are all these molecules are water soluble. So, um, a little bit easier to work with than things like cannabinoids because they're all lipids and fat soluble. Um, however, um, water is the enemy when it comes to alkaloids because um, if you use water and you don't drop the pH below four, I think it's about four point or about three point eight or so you need to be at. Um, there are a bunch of enzymes that will degrade the alkaloids in hours. Um, I've seen people try to do water extractions. And while if you could test it very shortly after the extract is made, you'll get a really awesome yield. There's, although there's a lot more contaminants in there, but there's a really good yield of the, of the alkaloids. But if you like let that set overnight, even at four degrees, it's basically gone because of all the enzymatic degradation and the oxygen and the water that's there. And it just, it all oxidizes either be, uh, chemically or enzymatically. And so that's why uh, you'll see most people working with methanol or alcohol uh, or ethanol. And methanol is actually better because you get a better yield and it's cleaner um, uh, than ethanol. Uh, and you just have to get all the methanol out, which is super easy for anybody who knows how to do these extracts. I read the triterpenes are um, al soluble in alcohol and not as water soluble components. So in present like Rishi. Reishi, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, as you get as you get to be larger carbonaceous molecules, um, you know, with less uh, water-soluble functional groups, then it becomes more soluble in alcohols and organic solvents. In terms of storage, then, what's the ideal storage conditions? Yeah, so if, it, if it's an alcohol, you can just – it actually – keeps fairly well at room temperature, but it'll keep really well at four degrees, you know, at the, in the refrigerator. So alcohol extracts are pretty darn stable. All of the certified reference materials are in methanol uh, and they're very stable, especially if you can keep them in the freezer. Like I keep all my CRMs at like minus 30 and um, I can have a working solution of psilocin and psilocybin at 125 parts per million and it will easily easily test well within uh, the 20, I actually like to keep it within 10 to 15% uh, uh, drift from the, the known amount for like two to three weeks, at least. So you can get four weeks out of a working solution. If you basically take it out of the freezer, put it in the machine, let it take its uh, aliquot to do the, the standard, um, you know, the control, and then go put it right back in the freezer and they, they last, wrap it with parafilm, of course. And then it, the stability is incredible in alcohol. So, but that's also a pure molecule. If you have an extract, uh, it might be a little less stable. But again, if you're in an environment where there's no oxygen or very little oxygen, uh, it's cold and it's solvent, so you're not going to have pH act or uh, enzyme activity. It's pretty stable. Yeah. And then some people are making powders where they do the extract and then they boil off all the solvent and they get a, a powder. It's like a crystalline sort of powder. It's usually very water soluble or methanol soluble. It goes right back in. I love working with those because they're, they're so nice. They just go back into solution super easily. I don't have to do any extracting or anything. The powders I've seen more commonly, do you happen to put them in your coffee or tea? That's something I hear a lot of people doing these days. You absolutely can, 100%. Yeah, we'll go right in. Just don't want to do it when it's super duper hot, you know. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the alkaloids are fairly heat stable for a short period of time. You know, they can handle 
60 degrees Celsius for an hour before they really start to break down too much. Um, so you can easily put it in a beverage, a warm beverage, and it'll it'll do the trick. Well, we're almost at um, over 15 minutes. Anything, Chris, that you want to jump in? And No, I think he pretty much answered uh, all the questions that I had uh, come up with. I think it was pretty thorough. Why the name Flourish Labs? We'll end with that question. Uh, I just flourish reminded me of mushrooms coming up in the spring or something, you know, um, I, it's funny. I don't consider myself a very creative person, uh, especially when it comes to artistic stuff. Like if you, my creative side is more of like coming up with experiments to do, but artistically not so much. So, um, I think I came up with it fairly quickly. And when I told my wife and daughter, they're like, Oh, we really like it. So I was like, let's go with it. And uh, there is a Flourish Labs that is uh, in Canada, and it has something to do with mushrooms. But since I figured it was international, I would just do it. And then it turns out there's another Flourish Labs, but it's a, a like a wellness thing. It's not – I don't think it's mushroom associated. But, yeah. I, lo- I, I just thought it sounded really cool. <laughs> it is a good name. I agree. Helping you flourish. So it's Flourish Labs, Oregon, as he mentioned. Pretty there sure. are other Flourish Labs. So if you're looking for George, his company, it is Flourish Labs, Oregon. So we can provide your contact information in the notes. So people want to reach out with any other questions or have a sample to provide, know where to go. I also um, want to close. We That'd be great. Yeah. And close with thank you for joining us, George. And close with a legal disclaimer: this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only, for entertainment value. And thank you for joining us. We were talking about psilocybin for pain. Our next edition with Dr. Chris Tony and myself. So make sure to stick around and tune in next time. Click to like and subscribe, or leave a comment if you wish to.